Welcome on into the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 18 of Beyond the Page, the podcast that dives a little deeper into the stories and columns in Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of the magazine, and I'm joined today by a pair of fantastic guests. The first is Lee Carr, already in studio, one of our talented contributors and the author of all three stories in our April cover package about environmentally savvy maintenance. The whole package is a must-read for any turf pro interested in building up their courses, environmental work. Do yourself a favor, either read it online at golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine or in the physical magazine when it shows up in your box later this month. The second guest is Anthony L. Williams, the Director of Golf and Landscape Operations at TPC Four Seasons Resort and Club Dallas at Las Colinas in Irving, Texas, in the Dallas Metroplex. He's a regular golf course industry contributor and the author of several books, including, pertinent to this podcast, The Environmental Stewardship Toolkit. Earth Day is fast approaching, April 22nd, but these are conversations we can have anytime in the turf industry. The package and the podcast are both sponsored by Toro. Serving the golf industry since 1919, Toro's exceptional longevity proves its sustainability endures at the heart of the Toro company. As the leading worldwide provider of golf maintenance and irrigation solutions, Toro has a long-standing commitment to protecting the natural environment and using the Earth's resources wisely because they believe these sound practices and timeless principles rest at the core of creating long-term value for all their stakeholders, including the global communities in which they live and work. Now in their second century, they maintain an unwavering commitment to being a responsible corporate citizen by enhancing productivity, minimizing waste, and continuously improving. You can count on Toro to deliver results both for your golf operations and for the environment. Because at Toro, sustainability endures. Reach out to your local Toro distributor to learn more about Toro products, including the new full line of electric walk-and-ride greens mowers. Thanks to Toro for sponsoring this episode of Beyond the Page. Lee Carr and Anthony Williams, after the break. My first guest again on this episode of Beyond the Page, Lee Carr. You've seen her name in the pages of Golf Course Industry Magazine for years. And now she is the author of the entire April cover package, The Environmentally Savvy Guide to Maintenance. Lee, welcome back to the podcast. It's been too long since you've been on. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. So your cover package, it's fantastic. I had the opportunity to read, and there really wasn't much to edit in it, but read and edit it when it came in. Tell me a little bit, because there are three great stories. The first is the 30th anniversary of the Audubon Cooperative Sanctuary Program. The second, uh, you talked with some big, big names about financing environmentally smart practices. And the third, you focused really on what Cog Hill Golf and Country Club in suburban Chicagoland is doing. What was the genesis of the package? Because you've been working on this for, I think, like five or six months. It's a long-term project. Yes. Well, the idea is to celebrate the 30 years of the Audubon Cooperative Sanctuary Program in golf. And that's where it started. And then there's always so much to talk about with the environment. We decided to just add a few more stories, talk about financing environmental practices, and all the great things that you can do to move your course a little further in that direction. So 
Audubon, which was founded in 1987 and the Cooperative Sanctuary Program founded in or launched in 1991, served as the kind of jumping off point. In the course of your reporting, and I don't want to spoil too much in the story, so go as deep as you want or not, what really stood out to you about what the ACSP is doing today and what they've done really since 1991? What stood out to me was how much the environmental practices are progressing. So what starts as an idea or one person trying to do something can move to a much larger progression of actions to make your course better or to improve the practices on your course and how those practices not only help the environment but also can help your course, add a lot for your membership and your guests, and make things better in a variety of ways. I'm trying to go back in my mind through a lot of the stories that you've written over the last few years, and I was blanking on whether there was anything you wrote that was overtly about environmentalism. Is this really kind of the first foray into that area, or had you written a couple stories that are just completely out of my memory right now? It's a good question. I should (laughs) know the answer. I think this is the first time I've focused wholly on the environment. There might have been other articles where we touched on the environment or some sound environmental practices, but this was the first time we really focused on that, or at least for me. Okay, and I have the list of all the folks that you talked with, or at least the folks you quoted in these stories. There was uh, Frank Laverdera, who is at Audubon International. He's their director of environmental programs. You talked with Ted Horton, who's uh, the secretary of the AI Board of Directors, used to be the superintendent at Wingfoot and the VP of Resource Management with the Pebble Beach Company. John Swain, who's also at the Pebble Beach Company, he's their current VP of uh, and director of golf. And then you talked with Jeff Von Eschen and Drew Norman, who are both at Duran Golf Club in Melbourne, Florida, the senior manager of golf operations and the superintendent, respectively. Some huge, huge names. And then other folks who you talked with uh, for the other stories. But what were some of the lessons with you finally diving in fully into just an environmental story and an environmental package, not just touching on it, as you pointed out before? What were some of the lessons that really jumped out to you in your reporting? Well, Jeff and Drew at the Duran Golf Club um, pointed out kind of what a long process it was to get certified for them. It took them years and years, but it was something they always wanted to do and always had in mind. And so I really admire the way they persevered to get those things done. They were helped by Dr. Jim Papperton, who is a regular golfer at their course and has the background and the desire to get them certified. So I like the way they persevered with all of their programs. And then John Sawin, um, who is the VP at Pebble or at Pebble Beach Company, um, again the, the initiatives that they have there and the amount of effort that they put into their environmental programs is nothing short of admirable. If you go to the website for either course or either property, they will you can see for yourself kind of how many different things they do. We didn't, we didn't have beginning (laughs) near enough space to cover all the things that they do. (laughs) And it's really cool from, you know, at Pebble beach, they put up fences to protect the Harbor seal pups in April. You know, they do a diving program to recover golf balls. They do all kinds of things and there's a lot to learn there. You mentioned that the process takes a long time. I should know this. I don't. Is there any, sort of average that you learned maybe from uh, Frank or Ted on just how long the process takes a course? 
Sure. And it depends really on where your course starts and how much they have to do. So the process can take only about six months, but it usually takes a little closer to two years. And, you know, the, the program has lots of different components, but it depends kind of on the components you need to work on most. So there are some easy things to do, like cutting maintained acreage, and there are some more difficult things to do, like working on your maintenance facility to make your chemical storage more useful or more practical or safer. And so it just depends on what needs to shift really on your property. And this is the kind of attention that really golf courses should be getting. I mean, there's so much stories outside of golf media and, and the golf press that kind of look at golf courses as why why do we have this? Why are we using all these chemicals? And that's really from folks who choose to either ignore or just don't know uh, a lot of what courses are doing and, and what organizations like uh, Audubon and the ACSP have been doing for so many decades, right? Yes, and there's... um. It's all in how you look at things, right? Uh, <laughs> there's relative. a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of places where there might not be a green space if there mm -hmm. wasn't a golf course there. There's a lot of urban environments where water actually is better when it leaves the golf course than when it comes onto it. And um, one of the things that really came out of that initial story was how much the environmental organizations and the golf courses can learn from each other and how they can work together. And um, Ted Horton was a great, um, he was a good mentor in explaining to me kind of how that came to be and how we can go much further with that on golf courses. And it's, it's really, it's very promising. There's a lot of potential there. I have never been to your home, but I'm guessing you have a little bit of a yard. Anything that you're going to apply from your reporting to your own front or backyards? There, my yard would make um, no golf course superintendent proud, that is for sure. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> I think we're dealing with some serious compaction. I have three sons, and <laughs> I don't really know what to do, but it's fine. They play on it, and it's um, it's not going to win any awards, but it's it's green. So it's a good start, I guess. Well, better than me. I, I learned that my front yard, we've been there five and a half years, and there's a spot that grass has not grown there for 20 years. So now I don't feel as bad. Uh, in talking especially with Jeff Von Eschen and Drew Norman, who, again, are the senior manager of golf operations and the superintendent at Duran Golf Club there in Melbourne, Florida, just because of what they have gone through process-wise and, and some of the things that they've implemented, what did they tell you about their experiences with the program? They're on the turf pro side of things. They said they have both agreed that they were very lucky to have Dr. Papperton to help with the paperwork because Drew really prefers, obviously, to work with projects on the course and build things and kind of change things in that way. And Jeff, as the director of operations there, has a lot on his plate anyway. So it was helpful to have somebody else come along and do the paperwork side of things. But also, they had always intended to get this certification, so a lot of the planning that they did from using native grasses and having wildlife corridors or building brush piles, all of that was part of it. And so they were able to kind of build slowly with that goal in mind, but um, they really concentrated on everything being environmentally sound. The second story, financing environmentally smart practices, you talked with two really, really big names. Isaac Brewer, uh, who's at A.L. Gustin Golf Course at the University of Missouri, and Tim Hires, who in the story is just listed as director of golf course operations at an exclusive property 
in Florida. I had the good fortune to visit him uh, on that property last year, and I had to sign an NDA, so I'm not allowed to say a single word about the property. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say what it's called, but uh, folks listening probably are aware where Tim is, uh, and, and obviously a lot of experience before then as well. What did you learn from Tim and Isaac, who have significant budgets, but also different sized budgets uh, between the two of them, about kind of the financial end of things, what it takes to put some of these programs into place. Some are very inexpensive, but if you go big picture, it can can be a chunk of your budget. It can, and again, that's where there's um, your savings can kind of compound, and Tim talked a lot about how savings can compound on water when you do some different things, when you're making sure to maintain your pump and checking the angles of the spray and the distribution and maybe using water at off-peak rates during Mm. hours in the evening, um, all these different things. Um, Tim and Isaac both had loads of great tips for kind of how to cut your budget, but neither one of them obviously has any formulas for exactly how to do that because every property is different, and it's very hard to put those numbers together when there are so many variables. So mm-hmm. sure, you can say it might be $300 for you know, seed for an acre if you're going to turn that into a pollinator, pollinator plot, but that doesn't necessarily show you what your savings are in mowing and fuel and wear and tear on your equipment and so forth. So every property is going to be a little bit different, but there are definitely ways to save. There's such a budget for Tim, just the the money he has to work with is probably out of the realm of most folks in the industry. So let's focus a little more on Isaac. What did he mention to you specifically? Again, every course is different. Uh, All the numbers probably don't translate perfectly, but just kind of to give a gauge, you know, he's, he's at a university golf course um, out in Columbia, Missouri. What are some of the things that really jumped out from your notes in talking with him about things that maybe others can implement. And this is obviously something we're going to get to uh, when we talk about Chris Flick and, and the work they're doing at Cog Hill as well. Sure. So again, the biggest thing is maintained acreage. And so basically you figure out how much you're paying for labor and how many hours it takes mm-hmm. and then what you save in doing that. And you can add in your fuel costs. You can add in the wear and tear on the equipment. Um and that that adds up year after year. It doesn't seem like a huge savings at first, but then when you put that on several acres or put it year after year, it starts to increase. And then he also talked about kind of, you know, like they started a few beehives, and so they sell that honey in the shop, and the profits from that are reinvested, so that's something that can grow. And then there are intangibles that maybe don't have a monetary value but add a lot to your course property they have over 3,000 baby bluebirds that have been <laughs> born on their property mm-hmm. in the past 25, 26 years, um, and things like that. Like I said, they don't have a cost, but they mean a lot to golfers, or he has a lot of people who come and walk the property early in the morning or late in the evening um, to just enjoy the beauty that's there. Well, and that opens it up, and this is a conversation I feel like I've had with so many people around the sport in the last year, but something like that. The the baby bluebirds being born, that's one thing. The the honey being sold in the pro shop, that's one thing. But just having people be able to walk the course without having to necessarily play the course just opens it up to a completely different, I don't want to say audience, but a completely different group of people. 
It does, and it makes people feel differently about having a golf course in that area and what it, they're starting to understand kind of what a golf course can do for the environment as opposed to seeing it as something that's not environmentally friendly. And that makes a big difference in the community too. And a lot of these programs too, maybe not so much opening it up to folks for walking, although if you need different trails, a bit of an upfront cost there. All these things have upfront costs. And you see, just like anything else, there's an ROI. In talking with a lot of these folks, they obviously weighed the upfront costs. Did they look at the ROI and the potential profitability as well? Or was it more just, this is the right thing to do environmentally? Often it's just the right thing to do, but there it's it still has to be a business. It's still mm-hmm. an operation. So you always do have to look at the costs. And um, something that came out of each of these stories is how much, how important it is to have support of the owner or the board or whoever you're working with to have their approval and to just be very honest with saying, you know, it's going to take the pollinator plot three years to mature, but it'll be worth it. But here's where we're going. And you have to be upfront about what it's going to take and how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take to get the results that you want. And as long as there's a good understanding with everybody, then it should be no problem. <laughs> so let's look at Cog Hill uh, in particular, the Cog Hill Golf and Country Club, again, just outside Chicago. And you, you spent a lot of time talking with Chris Flick there. That's a club where there has been buy-in from top on down, just in terms of everything they're doing, because they are doing... A lot, to say the very least. They are, and they're another um, property with an amazing website, and it has all of their environmental initiatives listed mm-hmm. there. But they also have something extra in Angelica Carmen, who is their sustainability expert, um, as well as a farm, which is really cool and brings a lot of people and a lot of interest in. And so what started, again, as a small idea has really grown, and this year they're adding an orchard and all kinds of other things. So... And they work with a brewery, microbrewery down the road to bring different people in and different interests. But they they do have good support um, with each other. Angela, Angelica and Chris work well together. And she is able to keep focused on environmental initiatives that in some ways when you're a superintendent and there are other fires to fight that you don't have the opportunity to do. I think there's a photo in that story spread of Angelica holding up, I think it was zucchini. I think so, yes. And just this this mountain of, of produce off to one side. How many acres have they dedicated there to farmland, really? Good question, because it's growing. Okay. It's, it's definitely a couple of acres, if I remember correctly. But the idea was, Chris was originally hoping to have some produce for the people to take home after work, and um, it's grown into supporting their restaurant, and they do a farm um, evening, a farm-to-table dinner, and it's brought in a lot of interest and is doing really very well. It feels like it ties in so much to farmer's markets where you see not only the type of apple or the type of zucchini or whatever produce you're buying, but where it was grown. And a lot of times it will taste better and you're not having pesticides if you or preservatives or whatever if you have it far more locally. You know, and if you're growing on site, you know, not only are you having fresher produce, but there's less transportation cost and you know where it's coming from. You know, you could pick something this morning and it could be, you know, you could pick apples this morning. It could be an apple pie in the restaurant that night. Yes. And then any of the scraps from the kitchen can go to your compost pile. So it all it all works together. And 
Um, Chris said that for a lot of the seasonal work that comes in, it's one of the things they're very interested in is working with the farm and seeing everything that's going on over there. And they do a lot of different children's groups through there. And like I said, it's a big point of interest for the whole property. In terms of Cog Hill, that is such an environmentally focused, not just savvy, but focused property, Chris and Angelica and everybody who's there. Now, I know you didn't have a chance to go there in your reporting. You probably would like to. It's only about five hours from us at some point. But what maybe didn't make it into the story that you would have liked to include, uh, what got lost on the cutting room floor of your notes about what they're doing? Yes. One thing is definitely um, the enthusiasm that both Chris and Angelica have for the work that they're doing is is inspirational to say the least you can you can feel it with every email they send with every question they answer they really when you talk to them they really care about what they're doing and so I wish there was a way to infuse more of that in the story but one does it include all the good stuff that everybody needs to hear um, so I think that's something definitely to take away but also that they they realize that it's a process. It's not sort of you're going to be done with this project. They're always looking for new ways to do things. Just like that right now, they're installing a bioswale um, to help hmm. with the rinsing on the machines. And they're, you know, they're posting the progress of that on Twitter. And it's cool to watch and to follow. And it just they realize that small changes can lead to a big impact. And I think that can't be underestimated. Yet another way that social media plays into this. Uh, obviously there are course photos, obviously there are uh, maintenance tips and tricks, but also environmental work. And, and there are some folks who uh, we just highlighted in the in the uh, Super Social Media Awards and the GCI tweet-up for their work in the environment. But uh, Chris and Angelica, maybe, maybe in the 2022 round of awards, will be recognized for their environmental <laughs> work. Yes, they would be great ambassadors, obviously, for the environment. They are great ambassadors for the environment. And um, they continue to move forward and come up with new ideas and learn from the courses and properties and colleges around them about what, what can we do more? How can we do more? What can we do next? So, Lee, you spent the better part of five or six months working on and off on this story. And again, you've got a real life and three boys, and this wasn't it eight hours a day, but it was a long-term project. Three stories, I think it's about 17 or 18 pages in the magazine. You probably had just thousands and thousands of words of notes and just reams of notes. What what really sticks with you now that the project is is at least the written part of it in the past? It's going to stick with you, and, and there will be things you apply to your everyday life, but what really sticks with you now? Just to keep going and just... The small changes aren't necessarily small. If everybody is doing something small, then that's great. And there are things that you can do around your home, on your property, on your lawn, whatever it is, to make things just that little bit better. And if we all just keep getting a little bit better or doing a little bit more for the environment, that can lead to big changes. I know with equipment and different structures of properties, it can seem overwhelming. It can seem like a huge budget item. And and that's true. There are ways to help the environment at that scale. But there's a lot of small things that can be do on properties that could be done on properties. And um, I think I just feel encouraged by that. I feel like there's there's always ways to get a little bit better. And that that's brings a lot of hope. So I think that's that's what I took away most. And anything else you want to mention, anything else you want to discuss, anything I didn't ask about? I'm sure there's plenty I didn't ask about. 
There's so much. So I hope uh, whoever, <laughs> there's so much I could go on and on. But I yeah. hope if, if you read the stories and you get something out of it, then great. Or if you hear something on this podcast that inspires you, then wonderful. And I think we all just have to keep working together. Lee Carr, golf course industry contributor, the author of all three stories in the April cover package, The Environmentally Savvy Guide to Maintenance. Earth Day, fast approaching, but we can talk about the environment any day. It doesn't have to be just April 22nd. Lee, thank you so much. Thank you. My next guest on this special edition of Beyond the Page is Anthony L. Williams, Anthony is the Director of Golf and Landscape Operations at TPC Four Seasons Resort and Club Dallas at Las Colinas in Irving, Texas. That's in the Dallas Metroplex. He's also a regular golf course industry contributor. His most recent piece, There Is Still Always a Way, is about lessons learned during the pandemic. It's online and in the April issue. And he's the author of several books, including the book we'll talk about today, The Environmental Stewardship Toolkit. Anthony, welcome to Beyond the Page. Thank you, Matt. It's a privilege to be with you today. You are so many things, and we talked about them before we started recording. A turf pro, a martial arts expert, you're a heck of a storyteller. You are also an environmentalist, and your 2012 book, The Environmental Stewardship Toolkit, provides a literally step-by-step approach for anybody to become more involved environmentally. If you go back now more than a decade ago, I'm sure, when you started writing it, what prompted you to put your course actions into book form for others? Uh, Matt, the great thing is is that keeping good data is one of the keys to being a great environmental steward. So you can measure year over year and five-year blocks and just come up with a matrix that shows where you're at today, where you aspire to be one day, and, and create the roadmap to get there. So having kept all those notes and records, and this included everything from my time in college all the way through to classes I took at GIS and all these other places, uh, materials from Audubon, this, everything that I could gather. Because in the early days, you know, it was a little bit more of a chore. You know, you couldn't really go online and find a ton of stuff. So I kept really accurate notes. And then after winning a few environmental awards of note. Uh, John Wiley and Sons approached me about doing a book. And oddly enough, I thought, well, I do have a lot of things captured, and I have a, a case study or two that's been very popular. So, yeah, let's write a book. So I had never written a book. So that's scary, thinking back to signing a book deal, uh, having only written a few articles, but having the desire to do so. So uh, that's what it was. It was taking all of those things that I collected organizing it and putting it into a book that you could use no matter whether you're a a beginning environmental steward or a world-class environmental steward, the book has something in it for you. And it really does. It goes from basically square one. If people listening have no real environmental savvy, if they have no experience, if they've never had any sort of leadership, this takes them to the very beginning through like you said, really tracking everything, writing down everything, and and really just building up a program. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. It, it, it was uh, intentional, uh, and the title is very uh, perfect 
to really capture what we were aiming for, it's a toolkit. You know, there's a lot of tools in there. Maybe you need a hammer. Maybe you need a screwdriver. Maybe you need a, a measuring tape. The book takes you from, I have never done this, but I have an interest and my club has a need. Okay, we start you from day one, how to set up a green team, how to get other experts to come to your aid. Uh, and then it walks all the way through doing really advanced case studies and, and data matrix, uh, everything from nest boxes to ITM um, to, uh, you know, really looking at how to engage the community. There's a huge section in there on green public relations, mm-hmm. which has become probably something I'm more noted for at this phase of my career than in the beginning when I was uh, putting the base programs uh, in place. Going back decades, you had some tremendous mentors in your life. And I think the first one you mentioned, and this is not to detract from any of the others, but the first one you mentioned when we met a couple of years ago was Palmer Maples Jr. What sort of environmental history do you have? If you go back decades to the start of your career, when did you really start to pay attention to the environment as it relates to not only your job, but just in terms of your everyday life, really? Uh, you know, I was sort of born into it a little. You know, our family farm in Indian Creek, Georgia, mm. was six generations of us there. Uh, but Palmer was my, my first doorway into using those skills and that core rural agronomy uh, family farm mentality uh, to be successful in the golf business. Uh, because he had such a great, vast tradition himself and, of course, we're both uh, Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College alumnus. So for me, I looked through my farming agriculture lens and got started, and then I said Palmer, who was saying, this is how we do things as professional greenkeepers. It looks like this. We maintain a constant awareness of our impact uh, financially uh, and uh, in, in the environment. So years ago, when I came up with the term environonomics, which was the fusion of your business plan into your environmental plan, uh, that was my my way of saying uh, the two aren't separate. They should be always intertwined. And Palmer, of course, uh, supported me as a young superintendent immensely because when you're kind of breaking new ground, it's nice to have somebody who's already established encourage you and say, you know what? job well done. Uh, We still have a long way to go. Uh, You keep going. And uh, all the way up to even when I took the job in Texas, uh, on my way out, literally driving down I-20 from Atlanta, who calls me but Palmer Maples Jr. (laughs) to say, hey, you're going to do great. I I, I can't wait to see what you do. Uh, You know, you're going to just be super successful. And he ended it with, oh, and don't embarrass us. (laughs) <laughs> no pressure. So, uh, but yet also, too, uh, you know, my most recent uh, Environmental Leaders in Golf Award uh, for uh, communications and outreach uh, this past year, uh, who was the, the first phone call when that went public? Palmer Michael Jr. to uh, congratulate me on, uh, con- you know, continuing, not just to do it at a high level for a short time, but to always make that the goal. So, uh, you yeah, know, it would be... Uh, very hard for me to to explain just what Palmer has meant to me, uh, but if anyone who's ever heard me speak or knows anything about me, I give Palmer a lot of credit for uh, encouraging a, a young man with potential uh, to never give up, always keep trying to improve things, and, uh, and, and make sure that I was paying it forward, too, 
So a lot of the young assistants and interns and superintendents uh, who've worked for me over the years uh, were the beneficiary of Palmer's teaching, whether they realized it or not. And was it Palmer or was it a mix of Palmer and just getting out and doing things that really had that environmental impact on you, would you say? Uh, you know, I think there's always a measure of, of just personal satisfaction and awareness. Uh, when I really got started years ago, our first general manager just made a good deal with me. He said, you can do any of that stuff you feel is necessary as long as you're not one nickel over your budget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, the great thing was, even in the, the first year or two, we showed significant savings as we were developing green programs that were just very effective and efficient. Uh, so he enjoyed the savings. He didn't quite understand the environmental science of it, but that's okay. That's my job. Uh, but that's part of this process is uh, understanding how to communicate internally and to pitch these things at people who may not understand uh, at all about how turf grass is a great filter for water and how these urban golf courses are amazing green spaces for plants and animals and, and human beings alike. I think that was probably, Matt, where I, I first started to make the connection that uh, it's, it should be hard to tell. Uh, is, a, is it a great green space or a great golf course? Or maybe it started out as a great green space and became a golf course and is still a great green space. So uh, to me, the stereotype is, is golf isn't very environmentally friendly, and that's not true. It's, it's how you approach the maintenance, management, communication pieces, and engaging all the right people to make sure that your golf course is also a great green space. What were the key moments or the key points that got you from the family farm and being the sixth generation on the family farm in Georgia to becoming an environmentally savvy and environmentally focused turf pro, especially when you were a young superintendent, well before the book deal? Uh, oh, I, I think for sure uh, the, 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 the milestones along that way, um, joining Audubon International okay. was really important. It was a, a big step because we were committing to a third-party set of evaluators, and it opened my network up. And that would be uh, one of the things I would recommend to young assistants and superintendents aspiring to be great environmental stewards. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of great information out there. Uh, you know, Audubon International, GEO, EPAR, uh, your uh, GCSA, uh, and chapters. Uh, find that great person. And I had bunches of them. You know, Bruce Williams was another big influencer for me. Um, but my friends in, in Georgia and the Carolinas, and now, of course, the, my uh, family here in Texas. So those, those are the things. When I, when I started really going to a lot of education, uh, I started to realize that maybe I need to brush up on uh, wildlife and habitat management. So I was taking classes, and, and now, of course, you can do a lot of this online. And early in my career, uh, in person was how you did it. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, traveling and speaking and teaching and hanging around and just being committed to making our operation better each and every day. And, and I started with those jumps that I realized that uh, I had a desire, so the will was there, but the skills weren't there yet. And so it was about going on a, a quest to, to gather the skills. 
And again, that ties back to why I wrote the book. Your book comes out in 2012. I'm sure you took, what, probably at least a year, maybe two years, to really get everything down, get some drafts, publish it. What sort of feedback and what sort of interaction have you had over the last almost 10 years since the book came out? Folks giving you a call, folks talking with you, saying, hey, I implemented this, Anthony, thank you so much, or, or anything along those lines. Yeah, it's been an incredible decade. Um, and to your point, too, I I signed my book deal, and they were going to give me two years to write the book, but I was about to do a big irrigation renovation, and I said, I only need 18 months. I only have 18 months. And so they, they all laughed. Even uh, my uh, my friend, a friend of mine from high school uh, who's a lawyer, uh, recommended someone uh, in his firm, uh, you know, to uh, to take a look at the contract because you know, I'd never done one. So I had a literary lawyer and my buddy look at it, and I was on the fence. I was like, I want to do it, but I got all this stuff. And they reminded me, man, do you know how fortunate you are to actually get a book deal from a major publishing house? If you're an idiot, shut up. You know, we, we'll make sure it's not, you're not going to get killed. But I, I literally uh, took six months off what they were going to give me to write the book. We debuted it at the golf show in Las Vegas. So my very first book signing is in Las Vegas. Uh, it was super well received. Uh, you know, the, the PhD guys liked it because the science was good, but the superintendents liked it because it was easy to use. And the environmental people just didn't, they didn't know. If, uh, so it created a good message. So I spoke a lot uh, to non-golf groups in those first few years after the book came out. Um, uh, Mel Lucas, a great golf historian, UCSA mm-hmm. past president, came, came up to me in the um, uh, in this book signing line, and I was like, "Mel, you're kind of a legend, and why are you, you know, standing in line for me to sign a book?" And he said, uh, "Dude, you're one of the few superintendents without any co-authors to to do a textbook of this magnitude. You should be really proud." And it never occurred to me. I was just doing what came natural. I didn't I didn't see it as a as this rocket forward in, in my personal career, I just saw it as part of the path that I, that I feel like I was put on this earth to walk. And so uh, last year, uh, Mel published a book on the history of greenskeeping, right. and I ordered it uh, just through the publishing people, and he saw my name, got it, and, and personalized it for me. Uh, and so when it arrived, already signed by Mel, I was super ecstatic. It was, what, a, what a great thing. And I didn't realize that he had actually wrote a little piece about me writing my book in his book. So, again, it, the, that catalyst, that it was well-received, it was very useful. I taught a lot of seminars about how to use the book. And, honestly, I'm still using those core uh, ideas, man. So, you know, everybody's like, how do you keep winning these contests and things? Well, I wrote it in the book. It's not a secret. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really great, that whole experience. A real quick aside, I'm so glad that you received a copy of Mel's book. I haven't seen your name mentioned in there yet, just because I haven't read it all, but I have had a chance to look through it and read some of it. And if folks do not have it or they haven't heard of it, you need to pick up Mel Lucas's new book as well. So add that along with Anthony's book to your list and to your personal golf libraries. Absolutely, Matt. And, and not that I'm, I'm absolutely, uh, I have this on the tip of my mind all the time, but it's page 93 in Mel's book. Page okay. Book. So, not that I, you know, not that I really have that much information <laughs> to book about, but, uh, but it is page 93. 
that out and save you a little time. But no, it, that book is great. So uh, if you, yeah, any anybody who has uh, an ounce of, of curiosity about the history of greenskeeping, very good book. You know, I know I can actually say I know the feeling of finding your name in somebody else's book because a friend wrote his fourth book or published his fourth book this year and for some reason included me along with about 100 other people in the acknowledgments. And I get to the end of the book and I see it and it's just this tremendous swelling of pride that you have because it's, it's, a, it's a physical, public showing of friendship and what you mean to somebody else, and it's just, it's a tremendous feeling. It, it really is. I, I'll tell you, the day that it, because my mother always wanted me to be a writer, and my dad just wanted me to go to college, and so it all kind of worked out, and then I found a wonderful home in golf. But I, I was able to go to the Library of Congress and go to the, the Jefferson Reading Room and call for my, my book. So when you can go to the Library of Congress and actually call for your own book to be sent up, it's kind of a cool deal. So, uh, you know, those, those things that you don't realize on the front end, you know, when I was working all day and then coming home and uh, briefly checking in and teaching two or three karate classes and then <laughs> sleeping for a few hours and getting up and writing for a few hours, and, you know, you, you, you have to rewire your life to do some of these projects if you're a busy person. But it's also worth it, and that's, that's the, the thing. And I'll tell you also, Matt, uh, another connection um, – Palmer and I and Eddie Siegel, Dr. Siegel from ABAC, we, we got uh, together and created an endowment for the uh, turf students to be able to come to the golf show. And uh, I was able to, to help pay for my piece of that puzzle uh, with the proceeds from the book. So every, everything uh, came full circle. So it was sort of you know, the ideas in the book came from my experiences, and the money generated by the book was able to uh, go back uh, to the place where it all started for me and help the next generation of great environmental uh, superintendents and grounds managers to come out of, out of payback. So, uh, you know, the book has so many levels to it. Uh, you know, it was just a, a thrill and still is. Every time uh, I see a copy of it pop up uh, here and there, I, I still sign copies to this day, as a matter of fact. So it's been a great, great, great experience. The book itself, it's not an enormous book, but it's about three or 300 pages. So if we were to go into yeah. it in any great detail, this would be about a three- or four-hour podcast, and you don't have that time, and, and I don't want to take up that much time of you. Uh, so let's go kind of high level here. What are some of the shorter turnaround ideas, things that turf pros can implement, maybe even in 2021 or early 2022, uh, on the properties that they tend to? You know, I, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, man, <clears throat> I think it's really important that you understand the things you're doing to impact water, the amount of water you use, the water conservation, uh, water quality, how you buffer your ponds, uh, you know, aquatic plantings, uh, you know, how you're handling your property as it uh, exists for native creatures, both plants and wildlife, and how to supplement some of those things, uh, putting out nest boxes. You know, one of my tips is gotten more famous recently is uh, I used to mark all of my main storm drains with bluebird boxes. Hmm. So if uh, we had a flash flood and the drain got clogged, uh, you know what? Sort of, you don't have to wander out there aimlessly. It's really easy to clear the drain because uh, directly under the hole to the birdhouse is the drain. Uh, it's just not something that I noticed looking at my property was these make pretty good locations to put birdhouses. 
So uh, I think my maximum when I was working in, at Stone Mountain in Atlanta, we fledged uh, 328 uh, fledglings in wow. one year out of our nest boxes. So that's, all of these things are great because they're great talking points to the community. And that will be, I guess, my, my next job. Once you start doing those space programs pretty well, practice writing and speaking about the work you're doing because there's always a need for somebody to tell the green story of golf. And that's probably a separator. A lot of superintendents are a little bit introverted, rather just kind of stay behind the scenes. But we need some forward-thinking people to develop those communication skills to really tell our story better so that people will stop thinking about uh, anything that might have been a stereotype from 50 years ago and, and realize how important uh, a green space at a golf course is. The flip side of that, the bigger picture ideas. What are some of the biggest picture, most important ideas? Obviously, water is both a micro and a macro issue. It's, it, it's probably the single biggest thing out there right now. But what are some of the biggest picture implementations, Anthony? Uh, you know, I, I think when, when you start really looking at how these programs are going to be generational, so that you may start a project that you won't be, even if you stayed 30 years at the club, you won't finish it. it it's going to perpetuate, and it's going to need to be a generational thought. Uh, and that kind of crosses over where are you putting your trees, where are you putting your native areas, what sort of um, wildflowers and things, things that can perpetuate, perennial or otherwise, so that the way the golf course looks today, if you put your mind forward 30 years, and then work backwards, reverse engineering it. And that's what a, a person who manages a golf course at the highest level understands, that you make every decision you make like you're going to be there for 50 years. And it's going to continue to evolve, and it's going to be a seasonal sort of thing. Uh, being a certified arborist on top of a certified superintendent and certified grounds manager, everywhere that I have been, uh, you will notice uh, my fingerprints are still at that property, even though I may have moved on. And that's how I think the, the, uh, the environmental superintendent who's really doing a great job, he understands that the way he places the pieces of the puzzle together, all these little microclimates and, and organisms that are so interrelated, you are going to be the conductor of that environmental orchestra. And you have to understand each of those pieces and how they harmonize. And over time, you'll realize that you are going to hand this to somebody else. I'm reminded, I think, the best way to say this, Matt, is you know, we, we don't inherit the earth from our parents. We borrow it from our children. And that's the biggest thing, is to get that mindset. And then it's going to impact and permeate all the other programs that you're going to be uh, creating and, and utilizing in the future. A beautiful, simple, accurate statement. Again, you don't inherit from your parents. You are borrowing from your children. Your four P's of environmental stewardship, and this is pretty early in the book, and I love this because it's easy, easy to remember. People, planning, programs, projects. People, planning, programs, projects. It's early 2021. What are you working on right now in terms of projects, whether that's recurring environmental maintenance projects or uh, maybe even some new stuff for 2020 or 2021? Yeah, uh, we're in the middle uh, of uh, doing some uh, silt removal in a pretty major way. 
uh, with our uh, water partners here in North Texas, uh, the Dallas County Utilities and Reclamation District, heard for all those smart people in the room. Uh, so we, we are doing a lot of things. So how to reincorporate some of the removed silt, how to, where to dewater it. You know, we, we we're building a holding pond to dewater, and we're basically taking some areas on property and kind of doing some uh, grading work, and the plan is is to incorporate milkweed and a lot of other pollinator wildflowers into these areas as part of a major process of how how do you worry how can we basically clean water up that was uh, silted from off site? So it wasn't the golf course that had anything to do with uh, the erosion that started, but it's still a factor. And so we're working with these great partners of ours to uh, make sure that we're cleaning the watershed and that we're utilizing the acreage that's available on, the, on our property as, uh, as an opportunity to show how can we do a better job of taking uh, where it is today and moving it forward. And again, you know, I'm always going to anchor to water in some way because it's so critical to everything that we know. Uh, so uh, that's one huge project. Uh, in addition to that, Matt, always... Uh, you know, we're, we're uh, starting to write more about uh, some new technology that's coming, uh, how to use uh, water quality. Uh, there's several uh, oxygen infusion technologies that are coming, so we're getting ready to partner with several people to use some of our water features to see if we can uh, kind of eliminate aquatic uh, pesticide use and kind of use these newer oxygenation technologies. Uh, and, and that's part of kind of that might be a, a, a we're doing that this year but it's going to be probably a five or ten year case study uh you know just to see how much um, uh, reduction in input we can have so all all of the things we're working on right now i think have that as a core uh, how do we reduce our inputs and how do we uh, make sure that the water is cleaner uh when it leaves the property than when it arrived to the property fantastic and even though it's maybe a five to ten year case study Again, it's in that range of long-term planning and, you know, five, ten years, you might be there in five years. I don't know if you'll still be in the industry, at least in your in your current involvement, uh, in ten. And so, again, that's something that might outlast you. Uh, very possibly. Uh, and I'm, I'm okay with it. I, I like to refer to myself as, uh, as a vintage superintendent now <laughs> yeah, because I've been at this for 36 years. <laughs> Uh, I got so I got some good years left, but there's certainly a time where I'll uh, probably step back. And you know, uh, along that line, uh, Four Seasons is entering the Environmental Leaders of Golf, which goes uh, that contest. The entry deadline is April 30th. For everybody that's uh, interested, you might have to get after it pretty quick. But Anthony Williams isn't entering this year. Actually, Cortland Winkle, one of my superintendents, uh, yep. is, is, is handling it. And, of course, I'll be uh, overlooking it a little, but it's, it was time. You know, I had had such a great success, but part of what I, I consider to be the legacy I want to leave is to have trained a great group of young, environmentally-minded superintendents. And so Cortland's ready, and he'll be taking four seasons into the competition this year, and I'm excited. I hope that, that he and the property does well. And so I think, Matt, you hit on a, a pretty good topic there. Of, yeah, I think it's also important that we uh, make sure we give uh, the young men and ladies that work for us the best training possible. And then I'm okay. I hope all of the 
gentlemen and ladies that have worked for me over the years will surpass my achievements. That would be the, the greatest thing ever, uh, I think, that your career impacted others to go beyond where you went. And, you know, as a teacher of martial arts and many other things, I think that's what we aspire to, is to uh, keep others uh, moving forward bigger than we can think ourselves and seeing that generational aspect. You plant your seeds in a garden you never get to see. That is a legacy, as Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote it. Yeah. Anthony, before I let you go, anything else you want to talk about? Anything you want to plug, promote, mention, anything or or everything? Well, of course, everybody. You know, Golf Course Industry Magazine is awesome. You guys are great. I'm proud to be part of the team. Uh, Thank you. But but honestly, you know, as a as a recently certified master life coach, if there's something that that your desire to do is just it's in you, you feel it. Today is the time. You know, you can't. Everything you put off to tomorrow really never happens. So I would never have written the book or done any of these other things. I certainly wouldn't have gained and lost 100 pounds if if you don't take the notion that today is your day. It's your opportunity. Now is the time. Uh, COVID, pandemic, all the rest of the things that may come and go, but there are a few people in life who just seem to always be surfing the wave, as we say, and join that movement. Do something today that will make tomorrow better, and you're always going to have a very full life. Uh, so that's what I'm going to end with is uh, have strong faith, and I guess I'll end it this way. If you sow good seeds, nurture your network, that's going to launch your legacy. Anthony L. Williams, always a pleasure to talk with you. He is the Director of Golf and Landscape Operations at TPC Four Seasons Resort and Club Dallas at Las Colinas in Irving, Texas, and the author of the Environmental Stewardship Toolkit, among other books. Add that to your library if you don't already own a copy. Anthony, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Have a great day. My thanks again to Anthony Williams and Lee Carr for joining the podcast today. My thanks to Toro for sponsoring both this episode of Beyond the Page and the Environmentally Savvy Guide to Maintenance in the April issue. Again, reach out to your local Toro distributor to learn more about Toro products, including the new full line of electric walk and ride greens mowers. And my thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. New episodes of Beyond the Page, Greens with Envy, Off the Course, and Tartan Talks right here every Tuesday. Our April issue is online now with all of Lee Carr's environmental stories, plus features by Guy Cipriano about a pair of Pittsburgh course projects and by Otter Creek Agronomy Director Brent Downs about how to have a conversation with challenging members and so much more. Check it out at www.golfcourseindustry.com magazine. You can read more industry news and notes in our Fast and Firm newsletter delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. Sign up online at www.golfcourseindustry.com under the subscribe tab on the homepage. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are incredible. Terry Buchan, Henry DeLozier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morrigan, and Matthew Wharton. We have some top-notch regular contributors too. Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, you heard from her in this hour. Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, John Torciello, Anthony Williams, you heard from him too, and Rick Wolfel. 
Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our sales pros are Russ Warner and Andrew Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Love his work. Kate McCoy makes sure everything goes where it should. Averill Braden and Christina Warner make sure you all receive the magazine. Did Christina watch the Masters all weekend with Russ? I can neither confirm nor deny. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. Michaela Dodrell handles advertising and production. Irene Sweeney does more than we can ever keep straight. Nick Adams, Jay Boyden, Alexander Garrett, and Clark Quick are our multimedia and SEO team. Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Bauman, Patrick Briand, and Aaron Schreider make up our IT team. Thomas Vidmar handles our classifieds. Our president is Chris Foster. Above all else, we couldn't do what we do without you. Thanks so much for listening. Get on, Derek Queens and Seven.